Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you that we can have this opportunity to gather in your name and proclaim your praises, sing to you and to one another, um, exalting who you are, what you've done for us in Christ. And we give you thanks, Lord, this morning for all your grace to us. We read that out of your fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so we just thank you that your grace keeps flowing toward us every day. Whatever the need is, Lord, there's grace coming from you, from your throne of grace to each of your children this morning. Lord, you know every need that every one of us has. You know we need grace for physical stuff. Maybe we're just tired and feeling weak or just not that healthy. Lord, we need your grace for those who are weary or hurting emotionally. Or we need your grace spiritually to maybe just fight off numbness this morning. We're here, but our hearts are just pretty cold. And only you can revive us, Lord. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be moving among us and in us and giving us ears to hear your word and not just be numb to it. And there are those who are listening either in person or online who are spiritually dead still and need to be made alive by your quickening grace. So Lord, thank you that your grace is sufficient for all of our needs and we are depending on you to work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us have heard the term born again. For example, if a football team has been losing for a long time and then experiences a dramatic turnaround, you might hear someone say that the team was born again. But even if we know born again means a lot more than that, we still may be a little unclear about the whole subject. And so our text for today tells us how the new birth takes place and some of the effects that it produces. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Last Sunday we saw that Peter begins his letter with some massive statements about our salvation That we were chosen by God the Father as part of his eternal plan. That we were sanctified, set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that we were sprinkled, we were cleansed from all our sin by the blood of Jesus. And we saw that one of the purposes of these realities is that we would obey Jesus Christ. This morning we'll be looking at verse 3 which tells us about a miracle that God has done for us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
So first of all, what does it mean to be born again? Being born again or the new birth or regeneration are all words that express the supernatural act of God that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life and brings us into his family. So the first time we were born, we were physically alive and spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's writing that to people that are breathing, but spiritually their, their hearts are dead to God. When we are born again, God gives us spiritual life. The first time we were born, we were born into Adam's fallen family. And as Ephesians 2.3 tells us, we were by nature children of wrath. When we are born again, we are born into God's family and become his own children. As one writer put it, to be born again is not turning over a new leaf. It is receiving a new life. And so we're not talking about self-improvement. We're not talking about religious effort. We're talking about a miracle that God gives us a new life that changes everything. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 can say, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. New things have come. You're starting over. So let's turn to John chapter 3 and see what Jesus says about the new birth. John chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So why does Jesus say in verse 7, you must be born again? Not just a nice option, but absolutely essential. And he tells us two reasons in the previous verses. In verse 3, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is being in a right relationship with the king, namely God, living under his rightful authority and participating in all the blessings and benefits of belonging to him, both in this world and in the world to come. And without this miracle of the new birth, we are unable to see it. We won't perceive it. We won't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man, the the person that doesn't have this new birth, the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, 
the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand. So there's an inability to understand or see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And second, we need to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's what he says in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So it's not a perfect illustration, but um, you might remember uh, a few years ago, I used the idea of um, Minnesota passing a new law that only people that were born in Sweden can enter the state. So Angel and I drive up to see Caleb from time to time and we get stopped at the border and the guard says, well, where were you born? And Angel would say, I was born in Wisconsin. I'd say, I was born in Pennsylvania. He'd say, sorry, you can't come in. You have to be born in Sweden. And I'd say, what? Well, how about if we try to fake a Swedish accent? <laughs> and maybe we could eat some Swedish food and try to look like Swedes. Sorry. Unless you're actually born in Sweden, you cannot enter. Well, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot and will not enter heaven. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. There's two and a half billion people in this world that call themselves Christians. And it doesn't matter if you know all the right answers. If you've been born and raised in a Christian home and a Christian church, you know all the right answers. And it doesn't matter if you know all the right lingo. It's not hard to pick up the Christian language. You can fake it pretty well. But Jesus says, unless there's this fundamental, miraculous heart change called being born again, you won't enter the kingdom ought to get our attention. So how does this new birth take place? And a very common belief is that it happens through baptism, sometimes called baptismal regeneration. So I grew up in a church where one of the pastors told me, in baptism we are born again into God's family. And if you go to their official website, you will see the quote, born children of a fallen humanity in the baptismal waters, we become God's reborn children. But the new birth is not produced by baptism or anything else we can do. Jesus says in 3.6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh can only produce flesh things. And flesh, especially in John, is pointing to human weakness, human inability, human antagonism toward God. There's nothing there just from the flesh. And in John 6.63 says, the spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Which Martin Luther said, that does not mean a little bit. It means nothing. We do not have the power in ourselves to make this happen. Even the imagery of birth reminds us that we are not the decisive factor in this event. So years ago, I cut this out from the paper. Catherine Elaine Scott decided she would rather be born a mayor's daughter than a city councilman's daughter. 
Katie was due the first week in December, but finally checked into the family almost a month late. Scott surmised Katie was waiting until he became mayor because she was on her way as he took the oath. So you don't have to answer these out loud. Did, did Katie decide to be conceived? Did she plan when she would be born? Did she have any control over the timing because she actually wanted to arrive when her dad was a mayor? Well, no. <laughs> of course not. Babies are created by God, and they're brought into the world according to his providential timing. They're not in the driver's seat of this process. Just part of the reason the new birth is the illustration Jesus uses to call attention to the fact you're not in the driver's seat. So back to 1 Peter 1.3, it's very clear. God caused us to be born again. Do you see that? God caused us to be born again. This is from John Piper. We do not cause the new birth. God causes the new birth. Any spiritually good thing that we do is a result of the new birth, not a cause of the new birth. This means that the new birth is taken out of our hands. It is not in our control. And so it confronts us with our helplessness and our absolute dependence. This is unsettling. We are told we won't see the kingdom of God if we're not born again. And we're told that we can't make ourselves be born again. We don't decide to make it happen any more than a baby decides to make his birth happen or more accurately, make his conception happen. Or even more accurately, we don't decide to make it happen any more than dead men decide to give themselves life. The reason we need to be born again is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's why we need the new birth. And that's why we can't make it happen. So do you get a a feeling of, we're helpless in this. We're absolutely dependent on God to do a miracle, and nothing less will do. So why does God cause us to be born again? Verse 3 tells us it was according to his great mercy or his abundant mercy. Mercy is God's tender compassion and his inclination to help those in misery and distress, even when they don't deserve his help. So look how this is linked a couple times about God's mercy. Titus chapter 3, if you want to turn over to that, Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. When the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There it is, born again, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So there's mercy, being born again, saved. It's not about our merit, what we have earned by our righteous deeds, as if God's keeping points according to his free mercy. And also turn to Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, after this 
really dooming analysis of who we are in the first three verses. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that verse tells us one of the things we'll be doing in heaven is, and I don't know how time works there, but let's just say Monday, (laughs) here's God showing us the riches of his love and kindness and grace in Christ in redeeming us and rescuing us and making us alive. And we just are overwhelmed and thanking him and praising him and rejoicing in that. And then Tuesday, we get another lesson on the riches of his kindness and grace and love and mercy. And we just are enthralled again. And and it just keeps going like that forever. We'll never exhaust it. We don't become omnipotent when we go to heaven or omniscient when we go to heaven. We don't become God. So there's always more to learn. And we'll always learn more about this salvation that God has brought about for us. Well, verse 3 also tells us what this new birth produces. God caused us to be born again to or unto a living hope. There are three basic ways to approach the future. One would be a sense of dread. There's a fear or an anxiety that something bad will or at least might happen. So let's say you have a long road trip to take next week and there's a blizzard in the forecast. You might just feel some anxiousness. Am I going to make it? Am I going to be in a ditch? Am I going to have a crash? Am I going to... I mean, there'd be a a dread about how that might look. A second way to approach the future is wishing. So there's a desire that something good will happen, but there's no certainty about whether it will or not. So you might say, I hope my favorite team wins the game, whether that's Super Bowl or otherwise, but that's no more than wishing. There's no certainty who's going to win. And then there's hope, the way the Bible uses it, is a confident expectation of good things that will happen and looking forward to them because God has promised them and therefore they're absolutely certain. So the uncertainty factor is removed when you put a faithful God into the picture because what he promises will happen. He cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And so what he has promised for the future will happen happen. Before we experienced God's grace and salvation, we had no hope. Do you remember Ephesians 2.12? Remember, talking to Gentiles, non-Jewish ethnic backgrounds, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope And without God in the world, that's where we all started. (laughs) No hope. No good reason to expect good things in the future. Because we were enemies of God at that point. 
But now by God's great mercy, we've been born again into his family and born into a living hope. And there's three possible ways you could process the living hope. And I think all three are true. So I'll just give you all three. One is it's a living hope, not a dead hope. Job 8.13 says the hope of the godless will perish. So things that non-believers are looking forward to will end up dying away. But our hope is a solid hope that cannot perish or ultimately be disappointed. Second, it is a lively hope. It gives life and strength to us, especially during times of trial or sorrow. Hebrews 6 says, this hope we have as an anchor to our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. So we can all understand the imagery, even though we don't live close to a lot of water. There's a ship at sea. There's a terrible storm battering the ship. And what do they do? They cast anchor. It hits the bottom and it holds the ship steady until the storm blows over. And Hebrews is saying, our hope is that. The anchor that keeps us stable in the middle of terrible storms in our life, terrible sorrows in our life, is our hope. It's a living hope. And third, it's placed in a living Savior. Peter says we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our hope. He said, because I live, you shall live also. And we know, therefore, he is able to keep the promise to be with us even to the end of the age. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the hope of our future inheritance in verse 4. But uh, that'll be next week. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, God has given us hope, good hope by grace. I'd like to read something from J.C. Ryle in the 1800s on that verse. Go on then to your journey's end, rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Go on rejoicing in the thought that though you are a poor sinner, Jesus is a most gracious Savior. And that though you have trials here for a little season, heaven shall soon make amends for all. Yet a little time and faith shall be changed to sight and hope to certainty. A few more tossings to and fro on the waves of this troublesome world. A few more battles with our spiritual enemy. A few more years of tears and partings, of working and suffering, of crosses and cares, of disappointments and vexations. And then, then we shall be at home. There we shall find all that we have hoped for and find that it was a million times better than our hopes. I love that last sentence. Everything we've been hoping for, we're, we're enduring all this stuff he just talked about, but there's something better coming. The best is yet to come. And when we get there, it's going to be even better than we imagined. Eye has not seen or ear heard or entered in the thoughts of man what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine how good this future that God has for us is. So we have this living hope. It's also worth noting the effect that the truth of this new birth had on Peter as he's writing these words and with 
which he wants his readers then and now to share in. Look at how he starts the sentence back in 1 Peter 1.3. First word is blessed. Blessed. Praise God with deep admiration and heartfelt gratitude. So Peter is not content to just share information about the new birth. He's not saying, my lecture today is regeneration. Point one, it's by the mercy of God. Point two, it's to a living hope. Point three, um, you know, I don't even know. I mean, it's like, it's not a lecture. We've all been through boring lectures. And he doesn't want us to listen to verse 3 like we're in a boring lecture. Like, oh, I'm just indifferent. I'm unmoved. Oh, I just heard about a miracle God did in my life that changed my eternal destiny. Who's going to, what time does the Super Bowl start? So Peter is blessing God himself and he's calling us to join him. In blessing God. Bless God for his great mercy to us. Praise God for his miracle of a new birth. Thank God for giving us a living hope. Glorify God for raising Jesus from the dead. Exalt God for this wonderful plan of salvation he's talked about in just the first three verses. There's plenty here to bless God about. Now and forever. So that's one of the effects I believe the new birth has on us as well. Or should have on us. Well, as we close, how do you think about the future? Especially what happens after this brief life is over. The Bible calls this little life of 80-ish years a vapor. So what happens after that? A lot of people would say, well, I hope I go to heaven. Which being Interpreted means I've tried to be a good person and I've done some good things in this life and so I'm optimistic I have a pretty good chance. But that is not the way the Bible presents how anybody enters heaven. That would be a false hope. If God is convicting you that you need Salvation confess, I have no right to be in God's family and I am disqualified from heaven because I'm a sinner. I have disobeyed and dishonored God by thought, word, and deed. And that's every single person on the planet. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in the same boat. We all need salvation. So turn from sin and turn from any version of trying to make yourself eligible for God's acceptance by something you could do or offer. So what 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Jesus. So it isn't about your works or my works or anybody's works. It's not how you can work for it and achieve it. And so we trust in Christ alone. Believe his death on the cross is the only answer for sin. We deserve to pay the debt of sin in hell 
forever and it would never be paid off. Literally never be paid off. But when Jesus went to the cross, he died as a substitute. He was paying that debt in full so that at the end of that time on the cross, he could say, it is finished. It is paid in full. It is accomplished completely. There's nothing more to be added to it. It's just a gift to be received by faith. And he rose again on the third day to show he had conquered sin and death and hell. And so Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you that you have planned this great salvation. You sent Jesus to die and rise again. You cause people who were dead in trespass and sin to be born again and to be able to enjoy the relationship with you that lasts forever in your family. So thank you for these miracles you have done. Lord, I pray first for those who have experienced that miracle that our hearts would be stirred to give you thanks and praise that we would not be indifferent to these realities. And I pray for anyone who's here and they're trying to be a good Christian or think showing up at church this morning is going to get some points or whatever, but they've never been born again, Lord. They're still dead. They're still lost. Lord, would you do the miracle of rebirth in their hearts as well? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.